I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. Three months after broad awareness of the COVID-19 virus, Massachusetts citizens in lockdown have tried to understand the experience of those dealing with the virus directly. After more than 7,500 deaths in Massachusetts alone, what has this extraordinary event been like for those who work in the emergency rooms seeing the disease firsthand? Has this epidemic exposed weaknesses in our best-in-the-nation capabilities, or has it helped us to discover new insight into how our healthcare system might work better? Our guest today is Dr. David King, trauma surgeon of Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. King is no stranger to health emergencies. He's been a combat trauma surgeon for two tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He ran the 2013 Boston Marathon and then immediately attended to the most profoundly injured bombing victims for three days afterward. And he just last year treated David Ortiz after he was flown from the Dominican Republic with gunshot wounds. Dr. King is here to share his experience of what life has been like at Mass General during the pandemic and how he and the hospital have adapted to the crisis. Joining me from Pioneer is Senior Healthcare Fellow Josh Archambault. Josh will share with us his observations on how the epidemic and the lockdowns have shifted healthcare needs and costs, and what will be the most prudent policy adaptations to address the system going forward. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks so much, Joe. Josh, shortly we're going to be talking with Dr. King about his experience at MGH in the emergency room, uh, dealing directly with those with the COVID-19 virus. What would you like to hear from Dr. King, and what has your research at Pioneer revealed to you? Of course, we're in the early stages. What has it revealed to you about the impact this epidemic is having on our regional healthcare system? Yeah, as you said, Joe, we're still kind of in the early stages of this. What we're kind of intrigued to look at as the data slowly starts to emerge is as you've had layoffs and furloughs, primarily for elective procedures, what's the impact? We know from the last few years in Massachusetts, the largest growth in spending has come from outpatient procedures and for physician and other professional fees, those that would be directly affected by the pause on elective procedures. So that's where we're kind of have the luxury, as you say, to look at the broader the system. While today our conversation is really going to focus on what's happening in hospitals uh, directly related to COVID-19. Yes, this is interesting. As you say, this, the, the story is still unfolding. I think we're all part of one massive healthcare experiment, uh, involuntary experiment, and I'm sure we'll be writing about this for years to come. So when we return, we'll be joined by Mass General Hospital emergency room physician and trauma surgeon, Dr. David King. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Salvaggi with Pioneer's Josh Archambault. We're joined now with Dr. David King. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So before we get started, I should disclose that Dave and I have been friends for quite some time. Um, I thought to do this show after hearing many of his, his stories about what it's like to be at MGH during a pandemic. So um, set the stage for us first, Dave. Um, you were there at the beginning. Uh, we get the notice that there's a pandemic, uh, that we're going to go to lockdown. Uh, set, this, set the table. What was it like at MGH at that point? Did, did they divide the hospital into M, to, uh, COVID patients and everyone else, or was it more or less business at, as usual? 
uh, at the very beginning, it was uh, it was pretty much business as usual, uh, with the exception that we, we started taking um, exceptional protections for ourselves and for uh, for patients who might be co-occupying a a space with a a COVID patient. I mean the the overriding principle was we need to take so. As a general principle of medicine, you do not get to choose your patients. So um, obviously, the, the commitment from the from the get go was we're going to take care of all these people, no matter how many come. We're going to we're going to figure out how to do this. But your commitment to to caring for the ill doesn't end at um, at an individual. Uh, it's for the population, which means it, it does no good if we if we take care of uh, thirty. COVID patients, but in the process of doing so, generate 30 more. So uh, much of the um, much of the work that was done at the very beginning was figuring out how do we care for all the COVID-19 patients and make sure that the other patients in the hospital who are there for their own non-COVID-related legitimate reasons don't get sick. And just slightly less important or maybe equally as important is how do we protect the healthcare providers who are going to be doing all this work? Um, because if we, if we decimate the workforce and, and then we can't deliver care to anyone because we're, all the providers become patients, um, you know, this would paralyze the system as well. So at, at the very beginning, those were where the, those were where the, the, a substantial amount of, um, of effort was placed in how do we do this? So we don't make any new COVID casualties either out of other patients or healthcare providers. Um, now, we've, we've heard that, um, well, of course, part of the lockdown was to eliminate or reduce uh, elective procedures, elective uh, everything. Uh, so that took some of the burden away. Um, but I think also in the process, uh, the population became concerned for the reasons you just described about going to the hospital um, unless they were pretty sure they were sick. Um, you're in the uh, ER in trauma. Uh, so you're seeing the sickest of the sick. If your population was reduced because of the lack of elective care, the people coming through the front door, were they much sicker than they would otherwise be owing to the fact that they delayed their visit? So in general, I, I think that's true. So for example, um, before COVID-19 hit, uh, if you developed abdominal pain and you were uncomfortable for a few hours, in general, you showed up in the ER and we figured out what was wrong with you. You had appendicitis, you got your appendix out and, and went home in 12 hours. Now, the, I think most, most folks' approach is, is different. They're afraid to go seek medical care. So now they sit at home for a day or two with their appendicitis, which turns into perforated appendicitis. And by the time they show up in the emergency department, they're substantially more ill than they would be otherwise. And, and the same... I, I think in broad strokes, this is, this is um, anecdotally speaking, uh, to my knowledge, no one has studied this at our hospital, but the same is true in broad strokes for most other disease states. So um, patients presenting with chest pain um, well into a, a heart attack or a neurologic deficit well into um, an evolving stroke, whereas, um, you know, eight months ago or a year ago, they may have shown up substantially earlier in their course of illness. And uh, so anecdotally, that's, that's been my, my observation. 
I'll also point out that um, as the um, as the as the as the pandemic has waned on, uh, the opposite is happening for the for the COVID patients. Meaning, at first, people were staying at home and getting very ill with COVID. So, by the time they showed up in the emergency department, they were in profound respiratory distress. And I think what we're seeing now, largely, I think because of public awareness, is people showing up at the emergency department very early in their course, which allows us an opportunity to intervene earlier and maybe avoid them getting to this point of severe respiratory distress and, and winding up in the intensive care unit, which is where I am sadly spending the majority of my time these days. Um, so, you know, it's working, it's working in both ways. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting in that, uh, uh, naturally, in the beginning, people were quite af- afraid to go to the hospital, go to go to see a doctor. And now, perhaps, they're becoming more comfortable with the notion of if they feel ill, they're going to uh, act on it immediately. Um, I want to we'll, we'll visit that theme a little bit later, but I, I want to get back to the the lockdown itself. Um, the whole uh, premise of the lockdown was to avoid overwhelming the system, and you described some of those fears yourself in the beginning. Um, we only have so much capacity, and if everyone gets sick at once, uh, you know you have to make uncomfortable decisions. You can't speak for every hospital. You're at MGH, uh, the best in class. Um, how close were we, or did you feel that the hospital was um, to uh, exhausting the resources you had to treat the sick? Sure. So, as the uh, I am I am not an official spokesperson for the hospital, of course. However, I am on the uh, the mayor's uh, Mayor Walsh's COVID task force, so I have a little bit of visibility over the entire city and the entire uh, healthcare system. And um, and and I can tell you, um, the, the the preparations were good. Um, the the system never was was overwhelmed. Um, I I don't even think as a city we even came close to being overwhelmed. Now that doesn't mean we weren't stressed and the system wasn't working hard because we were stressed and the system was and continues to work hard. But to say that we were on the edge of being overwhelmed as a, as a municipality or as a medical municipality, I think is probably overstated. Uh, we, we had substantially more capacity available to us as a city and, and at MGH. Um, and as you point out, the point of the lockdown and the social distancing and masks and so on um, was really to to flatten the curve out, not for its own sake, although that has intrinsic value as well, but in order that uh, we don't overwhelm uh, the medical infrastructure. And largely that worked. Now, if you if you try to dig down on this stuff and say, well, which of these measures mattered the most? Was it masks? Was it social distancing? Was it was it staying at home? Like, which of these made the biggest difference? The answer is, of course, we'll never know. Um, we can speculate in a variety of ways, but when you institute three or four or five or 10 different interventions all at the same time, it's very difficult to, to determine which of all of those simultaneous interventions made, made the biggest difference. Um, probably uh, one of the interventions that mattered a lot was uh, sadly at the expense of our airlines. So by by limiting travel, and I don't mean by government decree, this was largely done um, by individuals alone deciding that they didn't want to travel. It was too risky to travel, which, of course, is decimating the airline industry. 
Um, but the, the, the demobilization of society um, probably, I think, uh, contributed, contributed dramatically to the flattening of the curve, or, or in, in our case, we're, we're over the curve, right? We're, we're decidedly uh, on, the way, on the way down, off the peak, um, substantially so. And, and so it was all these maneuvers happening all at the same time. We like to describe this when, when, um, when I'm talking to the mayor about this, we, we often use this analogy of we're building the airplane as we're barreling down the runway uh, to take off. Um, and, and largely almost everyone on earth is doing that right now, right? We're, we're trying to figure this out in real time as it's happening. Sometimes we make some really smart moves. Sometimes we make some moves that aren't very helpful. Um, and it's difficult to know which of all the moves fall into any of those categories in the moment. Retrospectively, a year from now, we'll be looking back and doing deep dives and after actions, and we'll, we'll figure out which, which of these many moves ended up making the biggest difference. And that will be important uh, when the next wave comes because um, – not to sound like the guy who's panicking, but, you know, we are at the end of the beginning right now and it, things currently look, look quite good. Uh, but there's a, le there's a legitimate worry that um, this could all come back again in the fall, uh, particularly if, if we become sloppy uh, and, and by sloppy, I mean um, ab abandoning social distancing, abandoning, uh, masks reopening too soon in a, in a way that's not smart. Um, I know, I know for politicians, this is especially painful because uh, the handshake is the signature intervention of an introduction, but, uh, at least for the time being, the, the social, um, gesture of a handshake needs to, needs to go away as, as a, an interaction amongst, um, people who don't share the same household. Uh, and, and that's hard. And of course the, the hand hygiene and, um, and, and masks sadly will not go away. And uh, I'll, I'll point out that, you know, masks, unless you're wearing a, an N95 respirator, in, like in the hospital, um, masks do not prevent you from, from inhaling droplet nuclei that have virus on. They don't pre prevent you from getting infected. They prevent the person next to you from getting infected. They prevent you, when you're wearing the mask, from personally shedding droplet nuclei when you sneeze and talk and cough so that the person who's in the cloud of, of droplet nuclei around you doesn't inhale it. So masks are basically a, a social contract when you're walking through the park and you're crossing paths, two people are crossing paths and they're both wearing masks. Essentially those two people are saying to each other, Hey, I care enough about society and you a perfect stranger that I'm going to, I'm going to cover my face. So if I sneeze, and we happen to be in proximity, you're not going to breathe in the, the, um, the droplets that, um, that I'm shedding from my respiratory tract. Uh, and and prob probably this, this makes a dramatic difference, especially in places where population density is high. So I, that was a lot of good information uh, about um, uh, what we have done. As you say, we don't know what was the most useful and uh, what wasn't useful. We'll only know in hindsight, but I'll, I'll take away from that. We should be isolating politicians. Is that the idea? <laughs> I, I think we, I think we need to be, we need to be careful with the way we, uh, we interact with each other. Um, not just politicians, but all of us. No, no, no that's, that's uh, you know, fair. That, 
yeah, wash your hands. Don't share pens. I see this happening all the time. Um, you, you know, you, you should not be sharing a, you know, a, a writing implement when you go right. to get takeout and uh, you're, you're signing your credit card receipt, you shouldn't be using the same pen that the guy before you, you know, bring your own pen. Right. Um, we just have to be careful about, uh, about how we, how we contact each other. And those are called fomites, these inanimate objects that when you touch them, um, they, they may have virus on them and you may not touch another person, but when you touch uh, the disposable pen, put it down on the counter and the next person picks it up, they've, you've just transmitted virus to them or them to you or vice versa. So we need to be careful about that. Very, very good advice. Okay, I, I want to bring in Josh Archambault into the conversation uh, to talk more broadly about uh, trends in healthcare and what he's seeing in his research. Josh, what would you like to ask Dave about his experience uh, effectively on the front lines? Hey, David, I'd be very curious to learn a little bit more about this coordination among hospitals or through the mayor's office. You know, uh, Joe and I have had the pleasure of kind of dissecting and talking a little bit about the quality of data that's out there or the public policy responses by politicians and the economic trade-offs. I'm kind of curious, though, behind the scenes, as you're trying to advise the mayor, as MGH is trying to coordinate with other hospitals, what is that been like? How has communication been? How has, what sorts of data points are being shared that has changed the way that hospitals have worked together, if at all? Maybe the answer is none, but just kind of curious to hear a little bit of how those conversations have played themselves out over the last couple months. Sure. So, um, so p- political parties aside, uh, I, I, would, I would just like to, uh, to commend the mayor for what I would regard as exceptional leadership, at least over the, over the hospital systems um, throughout this entire pandemic. He, he's, he's, uh, he's been incredible. Um, We offer what, what we all think is our best medical advice. And uh, in general, uh, he has universally listened and, and, and taken that advice and turned it into what I I think, and what uh, most of us, I think would regard as good uh, public policy. Um, and that is remarkable because sometimes it's very difficult to get politicians to listen to, to scientists uh, in, a, in a way that affects um, uh, real uh, action and, and makes a difference. Um, so I, I think overall the, the coordination amongst hospitals has been um, uh, exceptional. Uh, it, I can I understand when um, when many people want to try to draw a similarity between um, the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing and, and the pandemic. Um, I mean, th- th- obviously they're both disasters for the city. They both required a high degree of integration amongst healthcare systems and so on. But really, the, the similarities end there, except to say that that the Boston bombing forced hospital systems to to talk to each other in a way that before that was uh i i think largely academic and not effectual and that experience the the boston bombing taught us that uh that that having free lines of communications between hospitals and hospital systems um can, Im- can improve outcome for the, the greater good. And as you know, in times of, of mass casualties like this, 
be it a, a, a terrorism event or a pandemic, you know, uh, we, as healthcare providers, we try to shift our, our scope a little bit from uh, caring for any one individual to this larger approach of doing the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, and, and thankfully, to my eye at least, we, we never got to that breaking point where we, where we had to say, geez, we're going we're gonna to not put this patient on a ventilator because th- this patient is too old and will most likely not survive. And therefore, we're going to choose to not treat this patient in order to mechanically ventilate this younger person who is more likely to survive. So to my knowledge, that, has, that did not happen anywhere in Boston, um, thankfully. And to me, that, that's, that speaks to uh, a high degree of integration uh, amongst health, not just individual hospitals, but uh, the healthcare infrastructure on whole. Yeah, it's interesting. Certainly, there were some headlines around some state uh, guidance around controversial ethical decisions that may need to be made. I think that conversation will definitely continue as a result of this pandemic. I I want to switch the conversation for a moment uh, to get your thoughts on, there's been a number of headlines around, and we've kind of talked about those that would self-present previously at the ER heart attack strokes that just weren't coming um, in the rates that we would expect. So I, I want to hear kind of your thoughts there, but I want to pair it with another question, which is, you know, research in the past has estimated that about 30% of healthcare spending may be pure waste. And so we're going through a little bit of this involuntary experiment in which people are delaying care. And I think there's a lot of researchers wondering, what will we actually look back on this, do we think that all of that delayed care was you know, a negative thing, or, or, or do we actually find out that some of it avoided care was okay to be avoided? So just how, how do we think about those coming and interacting with the healthcare system that should be coming to the ER versus those that maybe were coming in the past, and as we know from state research, uh, indigestion, other things were one of the highest rates for why people were coming to the ER in the past and really shouldn't have been going to the ER. They should have been seeking care another way. How do you make sense of that all? And how do you plan in, in a hospital to be able to take care of those, those two, two different trends happening at the same time? Sure. So of course the, the real answer to your question is uh, we'll, we'll know next year when, when we can look back and analyze all this, the data of the present, uh, which can only be done uh, re- retrospectively um, you know, our hospital, just like all the others, are, are generating massive databases of this kind of information. So when this all settles down, we, we can look back and, and, and provide um, uh, informed answers to, to, to that very question. So the real answer is we don't know. I'll tell you next year. Um, but certainly there is some care that is being missed or that is being um, uh, dismissed, I guess, that is very dangerous. Um, for example, um, cancer follow-up and, and cancer screening. So you had a, a tumor resected um, last November, and you were supposed to have your, you know, every three-month follow-up CAT scan, and either either a hospital can't do it because they're not allowing these so-called elective 
procedures like elective CAT scans, or um, they're overwhelmed with the current um, number of patients and just can't get you on the schedule. Uh, you, you can see how, how certain kinds of care like, uh, like cancer follow-up and cancer screening um, could very, very well end up, end up being a, a very dangerous delay versus what you point out as um, as visits to the to the hospital that may very well have been wasteful before COVID nineteen hit, and by encouraging, I guess, in, either officially or unofficially, in, encouraging people to stay home, um, maybe eliminated some of these or a great many of these unnecessary visits. Uh, and again, the real answer to that question is, I'll tell you next year, because uh, we, we, we just don't know now. Um, anecdotally, again, and it's, it's, a single, uh, it's a single surgeon's experience or a single intensivist experience, which is mine, uh, I, I feel like the overall acuity of what, of what we're seeing being admitted to the hospital feels higher than normal, which suggests to me that people are staying home and, and, and becoming iller before they present to the hospital. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's good or bad for a population. It seems to be maybe not so good for many individual patients. Uh, I don't know how this will, will shake out in the long run. Uh, Dave, I want to pivot to, um, uh, stories of uh, trauma that don't relate directly to COVID-19. Um, you shared with me some, again, these are, these are stories perhaps shared off the cuff, but uh, lockdown creates problems beyond health. There's uh, the mental health element. There's the stress created by people being Surely. in close proximity for a long period of time. Uh, and some of that is manifest in, in uh, trauma. So uh, what has uh, the associated trauma look like when, we're, when we move the focus away from COVID-19 into the uh, psychological uh, cost of, of the disease? Sure. So uh, certainly there's, um, there's the outpatient psychological cost, which is, uh, I suspect, a, there will, there will, as, this, as we start to open up we'll, and primary care practices reopen, we're going to see a, a dramatic increase, increase in, in patients complaining of uh, depression and, um, and dysphoria and so on. Uh, but again, my, my anecdotal experience is that, um, while things like motor vehicle crashes are down because people are not traveling to work as much as they used to, uh, interpersonal violence, uh, feels like it's substantially, uh, increased and, uh, that interpersonal violence as you know, most interpersonal violence is amongst between people who know each other. And in many cases, it's people in the same household. And you, you can only imagine that the, the stress of, of, of being quarantined together, particularly at, at the beginning of this, when, when there wasn't an end in sight and we couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, that can have substantial impact on on mental health and behavior and human interactions, and and sadly, my experience over the past four months or five months has been uh, that this has resulted in uh, a substantial increase in um, in 
interpersonal violence amongst people who live together. And that is a, a terrible, unfortunate story. Yeah, and I, you know, I think what's interesting about that, David, is that, again the healthcare system is a is a lens to broader societal issues. Just on a personal basis, my wife and I are foster parents, and we've heard anecdotally these concerns from those in the healthcare world that the cases of abuse and neglect of where kids are ending up at the hospital seem more acute than they have been in the past. And of course, concerns about what does this all mean when society opens up a little bit more and you have family stressors with job losses and others a little bit more public. Um, I I wanted to get your thoughts here about what changes here as a result of the pandemic, specifically for the healthcare system. Joe and I on the podcast have really been able to dig into looking at the role of artificial intelligence to help patients navigate the healthcare system, when they should um, interact with the healthcare system or not, or where they should go to interact with the healthcare system. And of course, telehealth and telemedicine is bright spotlight on it right now. How does, and this may be above your pay grade uh, for MGH specifically, but just how do hospitals think about changing their business model and how they've operated in the past going forward? Does a lot of what they've done in the past go away? Is care delivered more at home? What what are your thoughts about surgery probably is not too different, uh, but... What about just the structure of hospitals going forward? So it's interesting. It's been my observation that um, uh, since the since the beginning of the pandemic, um, we we meaning collectively the the medical system collectively has learned how truly how much we can accomplish via telemedicine. Now the problem fundamentally with with telemedicine is is it violates uh, that which many physicians hold close as a as a um, philosophical obligation to the patient so many many physicians would argue on principle that you cannot effectively evaluate any patient that you cannot examine yourself so um, how can I tell that you have um, certain types of abdominal pain or that your tympanic membrane is red uh, if I can't physically examine you. So the, the physical examination is, is, uh, is, a, is a fundamental part of how a physician interacts with a patient. And this becomes n- near impossible through a computer screen. Um, and so I think we have to be careful. Telehealth is not is is not the um, the end game solution for this. Um, you know, I, the, the the number of disease processes that that get picked up incidentally on physical examination is remarkable, and, and some of them can be life threatening. That will never be detected via telehealth. That said, though, I think we've all learned that we can accomplish dramatically more via telehealth than we ever thought we could before because of course now we're forced to do it and we're forced to understand the the uh the left and right limits of of what telehealth can do for us and in some cases it's a breath of fresh air and we think gee look at all these unnecessary visits to the hospital we can eliminate um via telehealth and and at the same time you know i i worry that um, 
that these visits that we're eliminating, we may also be eliminating the detection of other incidental but nonetheless important findings that you may only detect when you get to lay hands on the patient um, who has entrusted their care to you. So, for example, you come to see me as a surgeon because you have problems moving your bowels. I conduct a telehealth visit with you. I can't figure out that, they, that there's anything wrong with you. Meanwhile, if I had seen you in person, I would have detected your inguinal hernia with, with a loop of bowel stuck in it that I positively cannot do via a computer screen. That's a big problem. And, um, and, and I'm not executing uh, my, um, my responsibility to you as a healthcare provider if I declare via a computer screen that there's nothing wrong with you, that you're fine, when in fact... I never had the opportunity to examine you myself and you have an underlying diagnosis that I could only have detected by an, by a interpersonal physical interaction. So, um, you know, I, I worry about that. Um, telehealth is important and we've certainly learned to embrace it through the pandemic, but it is not the end point. It, it can, it can never be the end point. Um, the, the physical interaction between a physician and a, and a patient, has, it, it has to exist. Maybe it doesn't have to, have to, it doesn't have to exist for all problems all, all the time, but it can never go away entirely. So, um, Dave, I appreciate those thoughts. We have had an episode on telehealth and the promise of telehealth, but as you say, uh, we're never going to replace the physician uh, uh, the human behind the, the health, right? Um, now, we know uh, that many of the uh, people on Beacon Hill, policymakers, legislators on Beacon Hill, listen to this show. You've already shared with us you, your direct contact with the mayor and, and his good work in this field. If they happen to be listening to you and they want to use your experience to inform uh, legislative policy, is there something you'd like them to, to know uh, when they think about how they can use the pandemic as a learning experience or to modify uh, laws as we know. You, you, you can opt out and say, no, you know, I, I don't really see a policy uh, a prescription here, but what would you like them to know if they were listening? Uh, so my, my plea, I guess, w- would be to, uh, uh, my plea would be to please listen, listen to the people doing the work. So what is, what is this line? Um, those who say it's impossible shouldn't interrupt those doing so. Um, so my plea would be, listen to the folks on the ground. Um, or as we say in the military, the, the ground commander is always right. right? He, he has the visibility of, of what's really happening. And um, what I would say is, and, and again, I, I want to I compliment the mayor in this respect, um, before making policy decisions, please consult the people who are who are living it. If if you're not if if, if you're pondering making a health policy decision uh, as it relates to a a municipality or a population or a healthcare system, and you're not the one putting an N95 on every day and proning patients in the ICU and managing their vasopressors, then you have no business 
making that policy decision until you consult those who are. Uh, and, and, and when that consultation takes place, obviously politicians become informed and even amongst, I, I, I understand even amongst very educated and smart healthcare providers, there will be disagreements about where policy should go. Uh, but I, my, my plea would be for politicians to understand each of those positions and then make an informed decision instead of just making a decision based on whoever can, whoever is yelling the loudest at a moment in time, because the, the, the person yelling the loudest or the problem getting the most um, uh, coverage on, uh, on the news may not in fact be the largest problem. It just may be the loudest problem and not the largest problem. Those, those are wise words. We're getting near to the, we're getting close to the end of our show and our time together. So I want to pull back from the uh, uh, important topic of the COVID-19 pandemic and your experience at MGH and bring up another topic. Um, unfortunately, this year, the uh, marathon was canceled. Uh, even the postponed marathon was canceled. Uh, I know you qualified this year. And in fact, uh, did your marathon on your treadmill in your office. Is that right? <laughs> yes, I did. I, I, I did a treadmill marathon on marathon on Patriots day. Um, uh, you know, it, it felt good. Um, but boy, of course it's just not the same thing. <laughs> not nearly. <laughs> uh, not nearly. I should reveal, uh, just this, again, this is, I, I can't resist introducing this. Uh, Dave and I have run, uh, marathons together, uh, but how many are you up to at this point, including your uh, your treadmill marathon? Oh, geez, uh, I, I think I'm I'm well into the 60s or or 70s now. Se- 70 marathons, good good for you. Well, um, uh, I, I, I'll I'll ask one last unfair question. Uh, we've postponed this uh, marathon. What do you think the prospects are for next April? Uh, so, uh, I have I, I just want to emphasize I have no official role with the BAA other, other than being on team BAA. So officially I run for the Boston Athletic Association. I'm on the team. Uh, I'm not their spokesperson, um, but I, I, I am a doctor and a, an intensive care doctor at that who spends my days treating all the COVID-19 patients at MGH. Um, I was crushed that we canceled, that the BAA canceled or the mayor canceled the marathon in April, but it was the right move. I am profoundly disappointed that the marathon was the rescheduled marathon for the fall was canceled, but it was the right move and it was a necessary one. Um, and th- th- those words are hard for me to say because I want to run just like the other 20,000 people want to want to run, but it, it was the right move. It, it, you just, it's, it would be unforgivable to, to gather a group of international athletes in Hopkinton, put them all in starting corrals, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder or, you know, breath to breath, everyone breathing in everyone else's droplet nuclei. And maybe it would have gone off just fine. But think of the, the optics of the alternative. If, uh, if, if even 5% of the field ended up getting sick from that or worse yet, 10% of the field or 20 or 30, or, I mean, it's just an unimaginable catastrophe. Um, 
And, and of course, there's no way to know what, what this will look like in August or September. It, it, may, it might have been okay, but it might not. And it, to me, this was canceling was the only responsible decision. And again, I want to emphasize, no one consulted me specifically on that day. Hey, Dave, should we cancel the marathon? I was never asked that question, but if I was, I would have been, I would have sadly at my own expense, cause I want to run my, my answer would have been, yes, this is the responsible thing to do. Um, well, yeah. So that's a, that's a great way to wa- wrap up the show uh, with the assertion that there are responsible marathon runners out there. I, I don't know too many, but God bless. <laughs> God bless. All right, well, thank you very much, Dave. This has been an exciting show. Very interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing your experiences. And of course, thanks for your hard work there at MGH, uh, helping uh, us all when we're, when we're at our most uh, vulnerable. Uh, thanks, Joe. And uh, again, I, I just want to uh, reemphasize, I am not the official spokesperson for MGH or for the marathon, but um, to my eye, um, I, am, I am proud to be associated with both organizations b- because there's been, both organizations have made a series of decisions and exemplified uh, exceptional leadership in difficult times. And I am, I'm proud to be an MGHer and I'm, I'm proud to be a Boston marathoner. Well, God, God bless. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you. Okay, we're back with Josh Archambault. Um, Well, we're going to talk about our impressions of Dave's conversation. Uh, That was one of the liveliest episodes we've had. Uh, Dave was certainly animated and excited about his profession and the way uh, we've handled this COVID uh, pandemic so far. What was your impression of the conversation? Yeah, you know, I think it is really interesting to hear from somebody who is really deep in directly treating patients, but of also having that experience of talking to the mayor and governor and others, uh, policymakers. What I took away was kind of two main things, Joe. One was uh, that analogy about building the plane while you're about to take off. I mean, data matters, making hard decisions on science matters, but it's really an art and a science. They're making gut decisions at the end of the day when we don't know so much about the pandemic. So that was a, a good reminder for policymakers. I think the other thing that I, I hope we can continue to explore in future episodes is this conversation around the changing face of the hospital systems in Boston in particular. We are very hospital centric. And I think that lessons learned, best practices really should influence the way we in policy community and the business world talk about our health infrastructure. Very expensive to maintain our current structure. And does that need to change both for health reasons and for business reasons going forward? Yes, Josh, you and I have had uh, earlier episodes together where we explore technology, technological solutions for innovation to make everybody's life better, the doctor, the patient, the system itself. So we're very pro-innovation. I thought it was very important, though, that Dave talked about the absolute vital nature of the doctor himself. Ultimately, you can't automate that away entirely. You have to, you have to accept the fact that doctors are vital to the system as well, but, uh, but we need them now as, 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 as we have always. So I was also pleased to hear him talk so um, uh, positively about the, um, the mayor and, and the policymakers in the state that no one can know this without the benefit of hindsight, what was the right decision, what was the wrong decision. What we can expect from our leaders is that they listen to those on the front line who are actually experiencing, um, in this case, the epidemic firsthand, uh, and, and building policy as, as we go, as you say, as putting that plane together as it's taking off. No, no easy task. So thank you very much for joining me again, Josh. Uh, I think this was a, it was a great show. 
Thanks, Joe.